Welcome to Independence, the FIEC podcast. Uh, my name's Phil Topham, Executive Director of the FIEC, and with me today is our National Director, John Stevens. Good morning, John. Good morning, Phil. Uh, and our Head of National Ministries, Adrian Reynolds. Good morning, Adrian. Hello. How are we doing I'm, in the I'm, news? No, I'm, what? I'm, I'm going to do the introduction. Oh. I've, I've got it written out. Here we go. Um, so uh, here we go. Are you ready? Yeah, it's Christmas. Well, it's a Christmas special. Go welcome on. to Independence, the podcast that explores the complexities and challenges of living in a rapidly changing world. <laughs> in each episode, we delve into a different topic related to independence and self-sufficiency and and discuss how individuals and communities can navigate the shifting landscape of modern life. From financial independence to technological reliance, we cover a wide range of issues that impact our daily lives and shape our future. Join us as we unpack the meaning of independence in the 21st century and discover new ways to thrive in an increasingly interconnected world. Now, where on earth has that introduction come from to our podcast? Do you not think I wrote it? Uh, No. It comes from ChatGPT. And tell me about this. ChatGPT is uh, an online artificial intelligence bot Mm. that people have been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Um, It's just been launched in beta form, beta form, depending where you come from. And you can ask it any question and it will write you a paragraph. I said, what is the value of belonging to the FIEC? And it told me the Federation of International Employers Confederations. <laughs> Immediate misstep. Yeah, okay. um, but it is, uh, people have been asking it to write hymns, yeah. interestingly, yeah. and to write sermons. And uh, it is quite an interesting exercise to do. Um, basically, it, it lacks connection with reality mm. um, in... in in different ways. I mean, some some of them are better than others. The art you can see the answers people have, have put in. You can if you go online, you'll see some of the responses people have got, Christian ones and non-Christian ones. And but basically it kind of trawls the internet and it's it's thinking artificially, using artificial intelligence to sort of process stuff. And and it, it's all quite anodyne. I mean I I put in um, what should Christians think of yoga? It's all quite anodyne. It's kind of very middle of the road. It's not willing to really take a position on anything. Sits on the fence. It does sit on the fence. <laughs> and um, you can see that having just um, uh, sort of walked through a, an essay writing um, experience with my daughter, who's at university, I can see how that actually might be of great benefit in that world. Um, but but here, it just it's very interesting. It lacks connection with reality. Mm. It, it's, it's very articulate. You know, this is very articulate. It could be written down by a real person, but actually when you delve down into it and try and get the content, you realise that that lack of connection with reality um, actually does count. You can't, mm. John, uh, you're preaching on Sunday, yeah. you can't put, write a sermon for me on whatever you're doing, the Magnificat. Um, it would just well, it would be interesting to try, but it just won't work. Wouldn't well, you just pull somebody's sermon off that has already been preached and written down? <laughs> well, you just be plagiarism. Yeah, yeah, that. <laughs> Actually, I think this just reminds us of what the limits of what's called artificial intelligence. Um, I remember listening a couple of years ago to John Lennox speaking about artificial intelligence. Lots of Christians have had concern about that. And he was basically making the point that actually human beings are still fundamentally unique. Mm. We are created with intelligence, with connection. We're embodied. We think about things. And he was saying artificial intelligence is really just high-speed processing. It's not intelligent at all. It's just the intelligence is actually in writing the algorithms that enable the system to be able to process information. We are way away from anything like self-consciousness and intelligence in any kind of device. So there's the illusion of that through things like Alexa or things like this kind of chat system. But it's just a reminder to us that human beings are absolutely unique. And we know that because when we try and use one of the chatbots on whatever it is, um, to get an answer to a response. It, it only goes so far. And then mm. you always end up shouting at it. 
Because mm, you, you don't agree you, with it. Wait, because it doesn't give you the answer you, you yeah, need. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's telling you very simple things. Have you tried turning it off and on again? So it's a bit more complex than that, isn't it? I realise. But but actually, you, you try the, um, you know, you try the Amazon chatbot, which is quite sophisticated, very sophisticated. Mm. Um, but it still can't help me with, you know, my crack screen. Yeah. It still says, shall we connect you with an advisor at the end? Mm. So th- there comes that moment, actually, where real connection really counts. And and I think there's something something to learn in that for churches, because actually um, there is a sense in which the world is pulling back from real connections. Mm. I I think there is an interesting dynamic to discuss there. You know, why is it that at our local supermarket in town, they've taken out half the tills and put in individual self-scanning tills? Why do people want to do that? Because they don't don't particularly want to engage. They want to be in their own little world. Mm. And, and, And I quite like that sometimes, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want to be asked you know, lots of questions. But actually, we, we've pulled back in the world from individual connection. But ultimately, individual connection is the only thing that gives meaning and and reality. Mm. Um, so actually, it can only go so far. And I think, I think there's something very interesting there about the connections we make with the gospel. And as churches, we're still making individual connections. We're not delivering pastoral care through chatbots. Mm. And actually, that really counts. And I think at Christmas, when we remember the incarnation again, I'm just particularly sure that just reminds us again of this uniqueness and extraordinary value of human beings. Mm, Lots of people will be getting gadgets for Christmas, but actually human beings are extraordinary. Um, And actually the the idea that the kind of the God, the sovereign creator God became a human being. Mm. um, uh, At one level, he was able to become a human being because human beings had been created in his image. So all of that connecting, speaking intelligence is actually a reflection of God's own mm. nature. I, mm. I was speaking to a group this week on Hebrews 2 on the idea of Psalm 8, what is man mm. that you're mindful mm. of him? And we might ask that question. Man looks insignificant, not very powerful. But the answer that the Bible gives and that Jesus affirms is we are supremely worthy and valuable because God created us to be in relationship mm. with himself mm. and to rule in glory. And the, the whole coming of Jesus is to restore that. So Yeah, and the only, we're the only part of creation, Psalm 8, is clear on, that's made in the image of God. Which is that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's an so we've, we've got to be careful that although we draw parallels with humanity and the rest of, for example, uh, the, the animal kingdom, um, and there are obviously similarities in physiology and all those. So we're made from the same dust, after all, mm. <laughs> in Genesis. Um, so it's not surprising we share DNA. But actually, there is something unique about being both made in the image of God and having the breath of life breathed mm. into you mm. that we mustn't lose and we mustn't let be downplayed. I, I Either by someone who wants to flatten the whole of nature or indeed someone who wants to say AI can can replace humanity. It, just, it can't happen. It's a nice link to the next story we're going to talk about, which is a really sombre one. Uh, We've not really discussed in any length uh, the migrant crisis uh, on the podcast. We're going to do that today. Uh, And it's in the context of this awful situation in the channel earlier in the week. Four people died when a a migrant boat sank. The uh, BBC reporting that each of the people in that boat paid £5,000 to people traffickers for a a journey that ended in um, the the death of four of them and the rescue of, of, of many others. This is a this is a human tragedy on our shores, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely appalling. Uh, but this has been happening for a long period of time. People coming to the UK and trying to get across um, in illegal ways on small boats. We remember the story from a couple of years ago of the kind of Vietnamese um, people who kind mm. of suffocated on lorries. Mm. They were being brought across. And it is absolutely tragic. The, the people smugglers are charging people huge amounts of money, putting their lives at risk. And people are doing that because they're taking the, the, those risks to try to achieve what they think will be a better life. It tells us something about the desperation that many of them must be in, in terms of the state of their home countries, that they're willing to risk that in order to 
to come here. And I think uh, it's not just the human tragedy, but it, it's one of those situations where there's obviously a massive public demand that something should be done. And I think it's one of those areas where it's very, very difficult for government to actually do ever, do anything. That government constantly wants to speak about how it will sort the problem out, but it is incredibly difficult to By next solve December, the issue. they've now announced, yeah. haven't they, which seems unlikely. Um, but but so, isn't the problem, though, that, that, that there is no safe passage for people who want to come here to claim asylum unless there's a setup with I particular th countries? I think, I mean, that is part of the problem, but it's not the only problem because there will still be people who'd want to come into the country not using that mm. um, or who failed through that process and they would still want to come. Yeah. So I, I think the problem is, um, it. I, I think it can be... It, it can be talked about in very simplistic ways when actually it isn't simplistic. And and I think part of the problem with the world we live in is that in the world of media sound bites, often the options that are given for solving it, you know, we're going to fly everyone to Rwanda, whatever it is, are, are very simplistic and turn out to be not workable in quite the way they hope to be. So so I, I think there is a that there is a challenge here for government in trying to answer a complex problem. Um, you need to have basically a complex solution, mm. but actually people are looking for a simple solution. And and I think part of the challenge is the simple solutions just won't address a complex mm. issue. Mm. I was looking at the statistics, but I mean, it's just important to understand what's happening. I think very often the public hasn't necessarily been told what's happening and why it happens. So you've, you, it, amongst those who are coming, you've got a mix of those who are kind of economic migrants. At the moment, there's large numbers of people who are coming from Albania who are crossing over, coming over to the UK to work. Then very often they go back to Albania, something like 12,000 people a year in that category. And that's clearly not refugees who are seeking to stay here. And the government has wanted to fast track how they can get people back to Albania who are Albanians. That's at one level relatively straightforward. Many of the others are asylum seekers. And I was looking at the statistics from the kind of Refugee Council, and the statistics are that once people get to the UK, 77% of asylum applicants at first hearing are accepted. And they're granted the ability to stay. Really? I didn't so realise that then, Yeah. Mm. Then, then on appeal, 52% of appeals succeed. So of those that don't get accepted, first of all, the, the consequence of that is the vast majority are- That's like, that takes it up found. into the high 80s. Absolutely. Mm. The majority of people are in the end granted asylum. So once people get here- they are granted asylum. Um, and, and I think that that's the fundamental problem. The government is wanting to speed up the process, but the reality is it's still the case that the majority under British law are still found entitled to claim asylum. And then it's incredibly difficult to remove the people who aren't. Mm. And again, it sounds simple, but the real question is, where do you return people to? Yeah. And um, that depends on knowing where they've come from. And in very often, you might not be able to identify that, which means you don't know where to send them to, um, or having other countries that are willing to take them. So the government is talking about sending people to sort of back to other countries, back to their homes or back to a safe country. But that is entirely dependent on those countries being willing to accept them. Mm. Uh, my father-in-law was involved for a very long time in helping kind of um, sort of refugee detainees, um, so this is probably about 20 years ago. And he would say that the fundamental problem was that even if they are found not to um, sort of be uh, entitled to asylum because you don't know who they are and countries won't take them back. In practical terms, it's very difficult to do anything. And mm -hmm. I think that's the government's dilemma. So the guys coming across the channel on the boat, once they get across into British waters, you can't send them back to France because mm. France won't take them. Mm. You don't know where they've necessarily come from, so countries won't take them. Rwanda was only talking about taking a very small number of uh, asylum seekers. So it's really difficult to see what is a, a way of dealing with this problem that people will seek to get here. And the reality is when most of them do get here, even if illegally, 
they are found entitled to um, a, a asylum. Uh, churches up and down the country have got ministry to asylum seekers uh, and the church mm. has got a great role to play here, hasn't it, in terms of welcome and support for, for those human beings made in the image of God, as we were saying earlier. Yes, and I think there's some great stories of, of churches reaching out. Um, Justin Gill, our um, IT manager here, has been helping churches with translation mm. software and equipment. Um, and do get in touch with him if you want to find out more about that. I think that's mm. a really important thing to do to make people feel welcome. And at one sense, um, you know, when someone turns up on the door, churches don't have to make political judgments about who people are and where they've come from and all those sorts of things. That's not within the church's remit, I don't mm. think. The church's remit is to welcome people who arrive and um, and to be kind and to be compassionate and to share the good news of Christ and the love of Christ in practical ways. And I think we see lots of churches doing exactly that up and down the country and seeing great fruit from it, um, especially amongst Iranians, but not just amongst Iranians. So there is there is great work going on, I think. And, and actually the church has been at the forefront of welcoming Ukrainians and Syrians um, and the work that Krishkan Dyer and some of his yeah. uh, guys have been doing has really helped us in that. So I, I just think... Um, evangelical Christians have demonstrated a real compassion and kindness. And we've got to make sure that that strong political views that we might or might not hold one way or the other don't actually cloud the judgment we have when person A walks in the door. Mm. And I, I think this is one of the challenges with the situation that we're, we're trying to, as, as a country, we're trying to draw up broad principles that apply and can be applied. But actually, each story is a story in itself. Mm. And for example, even the definition of what's a safe country or not, I'm very struck by the open doors material, that actually you could be in a relatively safe country, um, even sometimes in the UK. Um, for example, a young woman who's a convert to Christianity from a Muslim background mm. could be very unsafe. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not quite as straightforward as just saying the country is safe or not. So I think we have to deal with it, people as individuals. We've talked about that before, haven't we? With compassion and kindness when they uh, arrive. I think it's it's understandable that people are frustrated with people who are seeking asylum, who aren't genuine asylum seekers, who've entered the country uh, kind of illegally. Uh, the danger is that that can lead to a cynicism about caring for those who are genuine sort mm. of refugees and mm. asylum seekers, and, and everybody is seen in the same category. And I think we need to be very clear to say that actually we do have a responsibility to care for and welcome those who are genuine sort of refugees mm. and asylum seekers. I was in Budapest last week with some um, European Christian leaders and just hearing about what the church in Eastern Europe is doing to welcome people from Ukraine, mm. huge numbers in Germany, in Poland, in Slovakia, in the Czech Republic, in Switzerland, mm. Mm. many, many more than in the UK. We think we've welcomed yes. Ukrainians, and, yeah. but actually, yes. you know, Germany has welcomed mm. something like 1.3 million yeah. Yeah. Ukrainian refugees and have opened their hearts and homes to yeah. them. And, uh, and I think uh, we just need to recognise that that is our responsibility as mm. Christians to those who are genuinely fleeing persecution. And I think we also need to recognise that the, the bigger problem um, here, which is why does this happen in the world? Well, it's because of global inequality. Mm. Why are people wanting to come to the West and to our countries? Well, it's because they're living in countries that are often dirt poor, where there aren't opportunities, where there is war, where there is conflict. Mm. Um, and, and at one level, I think we ought to at least understand that and recognise that, that you know, we are immensely privileged to live in our country with all all that it has and people are coming from countries that that simply don't don't enjoy that and again I'm preaching on the Magnificat on Sunday and it's all about the coming of Jesus into the world and the reversing of the world order 
in which the humble are exalted and the proud are cast down, mm. in which the poor are fed and the kind of rich are sent away empty-handed. Mm. Mm. And actually, you can understand in world terms, we just need to grasp that that issue of world inequality is of huge importance and the kingdom of God will um, reverse what our world, the, the world structure where there has been injustice and inequality. Thanks, John. Thanks, Adrian. Um, let's move on to another story that's been in the news this last couple of weeks. A few months back, we spoke about uh, Reverend Stephen Sizer uh, and a clergy disciplinary measure tribunal that was happening uh, in London. We, we spoke about that when it started. Um, that has concluded over this past couple of weeks. Um, first of all, John, wh why is this a story FIEC should be talking about when it's a Church of England matter, it seems, with the CDM that's taken place? I guess two reasons. One, it's been a significant story because Stephen Sizer has sort of been part of the Conservative Evangelical constituency and therefore there have been questions about the whole wider constituency and the way that it's tackled, claims of um, anti-Semitism. So that's important from that perspective. From an FIEC perspective, it's slightly closer to home because we kind of discovered, we found out last week that Stephen Sizer has been in membership of an FIEC church. And inevitably, as a result of this tribunal and its decision, the church wanted our help to think about how it should properly deal with um, sort of Stephen Sizer in, in membership, pastorally and appropriately. So we found ourselves in a situation of having to provide support and uh, advice to the elders of the local church. It's their responsibility. They're an independent church. Mm. But we as FIEC exist to provide help and support. And so it was crucially important for that church to understand what the tribunal had decided mm. and what it had concluded about sort of Stephen Sizer and, and his behavior. So from an FIEC perspective, we had perhaps more sort of need to understand this judgment and its implications mm. um, because of that particular situation. There's a good report in Evangelicals now that's come out this week uh, about what the tribunal found. John, just walk us through yeah, yeah. what the tribunal found in, uh, in, in terms of Mr. Sizer. Uh, yeah, I would recommend the article in Evangelicals now. It's really well written. It reports very accurately what was decided by the, 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 the tribunal. Um, essentially, charges have been brought against Stephen Sizer by the Board of Deputies of British Jews, um, uh, alleging, I think it was 11 specific specific instances of anti-Semitic activity and also claiming that he'd given offence to the Jewish community and that, uh, that that meant that he sort of had not acted in a way that was appropriate for sort of somebody who was in ministry, somebody who was a clerk in, in, in holy orders. Conduct unbecoming is the exact word. And the tribunal looked at all of those um, kind of allegations. Um, in relation to seven of them, they found that the activity wasn't anti-Semitic and there'd been no kind of offence caused that was sort of um, uh, inappropriate. Um, for somebody who was in, in ministry. In relation to four instances, in three cases, they found it wasn't anti-Semitic, um, but that he had acted in ways that had caused um, offence that were incompatible um, because he was acting as a representative of the church and giving the impression that the church condoned his behaviour and his connections. That was largely attending conferences and engaging with sort of, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, other people. And then in one particular instance, he was found to have engaged in anti-Semitic activity. He posted in 2015, um, uh, a link to a, a, a vitriolically anti-Semitic website making claims that Israel was responsible for 9-11. It was taken down after 48 hours. He apologised for it. He was disciplined by the Bishop of Guildford in 2015 who investigated it and recognised that this was an anti-Semitic website and that it had been totally inappropriate for him to connect um, uh, with it. So that was upheld um, by, the, by the tribunal. So the overall effect was that of 11 charges, Sort of a, in one instance, he was found to have acted 
anti-Semitically and in three other instances to have behaved in a way that caused a kind of offence. Um, but the, the, the tribunal also sort of summarised um, kind of what they felt about sort of Stephen Sizer as a whole. The crucial paragraph for anybody who wants to read it is paragraph 115, and it's available on um, the, uh, the websites. The tribunal's judgment is public and available. And that says, in the light of its findings, the tribal does not conclude that the respondent is anti-Semitic by nature. That finding is consistent with the views expressed by Bishop Watson in his statement of February 2015, who concluded that he did not consider that the respondent's motives were anti-Semitic. For the tribunal to reach the conclusion he was anti-Semitic, it would be contrary to all the respondent has said or written and what others have said on his behalf. It does conclude, however, that by posting the link to the Facebook page in January 2015, he was engaged in anti-Semitic activity. <clears throat> it does consider that there is a regrettably a pattern of behaviour which falls short of the standard to which the respondent should have aspired as an ordained kind of minister. Now, the, the tribunal also found that in various ways, um, sort of Stephen Sizer and his behaviour had not been uh, honest in the evidence that he gave. They'd found some of his evidence in defence of what he did sort of um, unbelievable. So the character of his evidence and his self-defence um, uh, is, is kind of questioned. Um, and I think they saw him as somebody completely lacking awareness as the as to the offence that he caused by his behaviour. Um, they ascribed that to his zeal for wanting to stand for kind of justice for Palestinians and particularly Palestinian Christians. So, so the judgment concludes one activity of um, anti one anti-Semitic uh, kind of activity. Majority of the other specific charges um, weren't found. Um, so I think the. It's difficult to kind of summarise in a sense what the judgment concludes. I, I think what the tribunal there is concluding is they're not finding that um, Stephen Sizer is anti-Semitic in that he's habitually someone who's expressing hatred of Jews uh, in that way, but he uh, clearly acted in an anti-Semitic way in posting this one uh, kind of Facebook um, post. Let's zoom out. So we've talked about the tribunal. But there is also a really interesting piece in Evangelicals Now. Adrian, you're one of the directors of Evangelicals Now. You chair the board. Um, Joseph Steinberg, um, Jewish Christian, talking about the experience of Jewish people in churches. And there's some really troubling things in there yeah, that we've so, got to wrestle with, right? Yeah. So Joseph Steinberg heads up the International Ministry Mission to Jewish People. Sorry, I get it right. Um, and uh, his his uh, reviewing, actually, a TV programme, which I've watched as well, um, which is David Baddiel's kind of a Channel 4 documentary based on his book, um, Why Jews Don't Count. And it's a very moving documentary. I mean, it's it's got some um, fruity language in it. It's a secular documentary and it has got some bad language in it, but well worth seeing actually mm. and very moving and challenging. Uh, basically saying that, that Jewish people are marginalised. They're often forgotten. Um, the, the sort of big piece of evidence really is Dawn Butler's famous um, Labour Party speech where she lists all these minorities um, that the Labour Party are going to be for, but omits to say anything about Jewish mm. people. And he asks, you know, it doesn't really delve particularly deeply into it, but David Baddiel asks, why, why were they, why, why were Jewish people omitted? And that's a very good question to ask. Joseph Steinberg, who, who obviously spends a lot of his time going around churches talking about his work, um, recounts quite a few stories of where people say extraordinary things to him. Actually, not things that I've personally heard, but but you know that he has, mm. and and that Christians should be ashamed of. And I, I think it's very clear to me that in general terms, the world has marginalised Jewish people, mm. and that that worldliness is in the church, and perhaps unsurprisingly, and evangelicals especially, who should be very clear on 
exactly the things we were talking about when we were talking about migrants, actually, who should be very clear on kindness and compassion mm. and looking out for people, whatever their background, whatever their race, actually have had a blind spot here. I think that's that's pretty clear from the evidence and need to do better. So it's good to have that pointed out. This is an appropriate moment to have it pointed out. Mm. And um, we need we, we, just, we need to be thinking about that. We need to be constantly reflecting on that. And I, I think, yes, evangelicals do need to do better. And I think we have to be honest, there is a history of appalling anti-Semitism in yeah. the church. When you look back, some of the people who we might regard as heroes have behaved in appallingly That's anti-Semitic right. way. I mean, you look at some of the writings of Luther, and they are just appalling. Mm. And in many ways, uh, kind of contributed to um, uh, sort of some of the rise of anti-Semitism within a kind of Germany, which had such appalling consequences consequences in the, the 20th century. Um, you know, Luther was blindly anti-Semitic in some of the ways that he wrote. I was reading recently a history of um, kind of uh, sort of Victorian England, and there was a massive debate o- over the kind of entry of Jews into Parliament. Mm. Lord Shaftesbury, who we might kind of herald as a great hero of kind of you know, kind of factory acts and things. He 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 opposed mm. kind of the kind of a welcoming into Parliament of those who were from from a Jewish background, and there were others who similarly did the same. And you ha- you have to say actually, there is a history in which very often the church has not uh, kind of um, uh, practiced what the Bible says it should should preach. Yeah, and it's Phil, it's an important topic for twenty twenty three. We're yeah. going to come back to it. Mm. We're going to record some podcast episodes just helping church leaders think about this clearly. So this this won't be the last thing we'll say no. about it. We'll come back to it and try and try and address it wisely and carefully. Thank you. Uh, one final story I want to touch on. Um, I'm afraid it, it it's another heavy one, but I think has got some important lessons for us. Um, so these young boys uh, in in Birmingham um, who, who who fell through through ice on a, on a lake and perished. Uh, absolute tragedy. Mm. The thing I really wanted to pick up on was not to to minimise that that tragedy, particularly at this time of year, but but not only that, but but was the the, the way it was reported uh, and the, the the dear BBC presenter who who just broke down um, re- reporting that this news. I, it was great to see that compassion, and she's had a huge amount of support for it. I, I think as a as a as a dad of a of a young girl, I, I could absolutely understand why she would report it like that. It was it was just a great moment of compassion, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our hearts go out to mm. um, the families of those who've lost children. I mean, I think it's now four children who have died. Um, and this is I grew up in Solihull, so this is an mm. area that I know and I can kind of ima- imagine the place. Um, as a parent, um, you, you, you think what would that be like? I remember sort of when our oldest daughter was about eight, we lost her on a beach in France for about an hour. And you kind of, you know, all the thoughts that go through yeah. your mind. And you just kind of, you know, you you can immediately empathise with the, the kind of the deep pain mm. that there is there is there. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I, I think that the, the news reporter who was reporting it was Joanna Gosling, who was reporting it, was just so evidently moved in mm. the way that she reported this news. It wasn't a purely kind of objective reporting of a story. And it just struck me that that really um, is a, a reminder to us of how we ought to speak when we speak of judgment, when we speak of death. As Christians, we can sometimes, as ministers and as Christians, maintain a sort of professional distance. Um, uh, and actually, we do need to be kind of moved, and we need to grasp the reality. We need to grasp um, the grief. We mm. need to grasp what it what it really means to sort of um, uh, empathise and be caught up with that. Um, and I think that's just a, a lesson and a reminder to us um, uh, that we 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 need to uh, not stand back objectively in that way and preach with a, a kind of a right passion that comes from it. Mm. 
I mean, at the same time, I think reflecting on this, I remember as a kid, there were loads and loads of kind of what I call public service kind of broadcasts on the television about the building sites, yeah. railways. But the dangers of going onto yeah. frozen lakes in particular. Yeah. I mean, it was regular um, warnings. I, I, I honestly haven't seen those kind of um, sort of recently. Like, and I think that's another reminder to us. Our task is to warn of danger. That's what gospel ministry is all about. Mm. And we need to warn people that there are real dangers that they, they, they need to avoid. And I, I think we shouldn't be afraid of doing that in Christian ministry. Sort of, so sometimes we think we only, only have to tell the good news. Actually, we do need to warn people of, mm. of the dangers. Um, and I think the other thing that struck me of the story was the people who were willing to sort of, in a sense, risk themselves and, and sacrifice themselves to try to save mm. Um, mm. these uh, kids. So, yeah, and uh, one of them actually was one of the children yeah, yeah, themselves, very yeah, sadly, yeah. Um, who, who died. And I, I, there's something in that, isn't there, that actually... You know, the, the willingness to give yourself up for your friends. Mm. It's, it's interesting the Bible does identify that as something that people do. We do, we do see that in this tragic story and other stories mm -hmm. as well. Mm. We see people willing to give themselves up for family, for friends. I, I, I think, um, uh, you know, drawing a sort of negative comparison, if you like, the, the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of Jesus coming to earth, living for us, dying for us, being raised for our justification, is he did that for his enemies. Mm. That is just that is just the, the the thing that I think blows my mind about the the gospel more than anything. That I, I can think about how I would happily stand in the breach for my children or for my wife or or even for some of my friends. Um, but actually, you know, this is this is the extraordinary nature of the gospel is that Jesus did that for his enemies. Mm -hmm. And and I think um, you know, tragic. The story is absolutely tragic and moving. And actually, it does remind us the the lengths people will go to for their friends. And that's what Jesus did for his enemies. I think that's that's an amazing thing. And one of the guys who dived in, I think, was a kind of a trainee policeman or a student policeman, kind of very newly qualified, hardly been in the job for any time. This was one of his first call outs. And he was willing to kind of you know, so throw himself into the lake to try to save these um, kind of young boys. And again, I think that's reminded to us that, you know, even the newest Christian mm. <laughs> Um, ought to be involved in the work of seeking to save and rescue people and be prepared to do that. You know, actually, you don't have to be somebody who's been in the job for years. Mm. Um, actually, the human instinctive response on seeing people who are in peril ought to be to act to try to save. And I guess that's that. That's what we're called um, to do as Christians. That's what Christmas reminds us of. That's, after all, why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to be the saviour, mm. and we're to follow in his uh, kind of example. John, Adrian, good to talk again about the news. Uh, have a very happy Christmas and um, speak to you again in the new year. Happy Christmas to all our listeners. Uh, do rate uh, and leave a review for the podcast to help others find it if you found it useful. And we look forward to speaking to you again. Thank Thanks. you.